Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. We're so glad you're with us, whether you're joining us online or in person. This is the third Sunday in Advent, and we're continuing in our preaching series, Light at the End. Now, Tim and I's three daughters were all born when we were living in London, in the UK, and we moved back to Toronto when Emma was four, uh, Kate was two, and Charlie was uh, just a few weeks old. It was totally nutty. And uh, to top it off, we had just purchased our first home a month or so before. We bought the house sight unseen. Uh, we had only seen uh, photos on the internet. And I'll never forget the first time that we saw the house in person. We were jet-lagged, uh, Emma and Kate were running around, I was still nursing six-week-old Charlie, and the house did not look like the photographs. We discovered asbestos in the basement, and I burst into tears when I saw the grungy bathroom. We've purchased a crack den. I remember wailing at Tim. And in that moment, for me, that house needed to be completely torn down or renovated within an inch of its life. There was no fixing it. We needed a new house. Obviously, we lived in it for like a decade. It was great. John the Baptist knew all about their need for renovation. Verse 3, John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I can't undo my parenting mistakes, the things done and left undone at the office. You can't recycle the plastic you've already thrown out, take back that career-limiting embarrassment on Zoom, or make full reparations with our Indigenous siblings. Why am I not able to live the life that deep down I want to live with all my noble intentions? On this third Sunday in Advent, John the Baptist announces that there is a way to be renovated. It's going to be expensive, and it's going to take way longer than you think, like most renos. But this reno will open us up to the lives we really want to live, marked by contentment and hope. So it'd be great if you had the passage from Luke open in front of you. Either pull it up on your phone, it's Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, or it's on page 60 in the Pew Bible right in front of you, at the back of the Bible, page 60. Now context. If Luke's gospel reading today was a Star Wars movie, let's picture the opening credits together. A long time ago in a country far, far away, it's a period of great unrest and deep evil. Degenerate Emperor Tiberius is on the throne. Pontius Pilate has defiled the temple in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas are corrupt high priests. The rebel forces are desperate and gathering together. A long pan of the desert east of Jerusalem with nothing but rock and silence. And as the camera scans the hills, you begin to pick out on the horizon the strange-looking man uh, standing knee-deep in the Jordan River and what looks like clumps of shivering wet people next to him. He's dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt, the exact same outfit the prophet Elijah wore 800 years before him. And for some reason, this man is magnetic. People were flocking to hear him. Prepare the way of the Lord, he bellows out. Make straight his paths. 
And Luke, the historian, uh, spends time in our passage carefully detailing the political and economic woes of the time. Tiberius Caesar was being worshipped as a god, and while he was generally a decent emperor, he was rumored to abuse young boys. Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor, had deeply offended his Jewish subjects by sending Roman troops into the temple. And King Herod uh, of neighboring Galilee was hated for his high taxation, and John the Baptist had already criticized him for marrying his brother's wife. And there was only ever supposed to be one high priest in the temple. So the fact that there was two, Ananias and Caiaphas, tells you that something was rotten in the state of Denmark. All these historical details are simply to indicate that the political and religious condition of Israel was so corrupt that surely, surely it was time for the long-awaited Messiah to be revealed. The Jewish people had been waiting so long for deliverance from political oppression and now even from the corruption in their own religious system. And along comes John preaching to anyone who cared to listen. Get ready, says John. Prepare the way of the Lord because your rescue is at hand. Someone is coming. Someone so utterly beautiful and wonderful that just sitting around talking about it is not good enough. Get ready. Straighten the path so that when he comes, he can walk right in. Which brings us back to where we started. How might a costly and lengthy process of renovation be good news for us today? Whether you're spiritually searching this morning or you've already decided uh, to be a follower of Jesus. Well, I think we need to confront what, at least for me, is the hardest line in the whole passage. It's verse 7. John said to the crowds that had come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now notice that John actually said this to the crowd, to the people who would come to be baptized by him. He didn't say this to the religious leaders, the leaders of the corrupt temple institution in Jerusalem that I mentioned, the leaders who were colluding uh, with the occupying Romans or with creepy King Herod. No! John was reaming out the people who had made the effort in a global pandemic to go online, register for church, and actually come this morning. He was reaming out the people who had said no to the lure of Netflix and are joining us online today. Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's. You brood of vipers! Well, John the Baptist clearly doesn't dress or speak acceptably for polite company, let alone an Anglican church. But this isn't exaggeration on his part. Why? Because he knows the scriptures. In Genesis, we read how it was a viper that got us all into trouble in the first place. That ancient serpent representing the evil one. What did that ancient serpent whisper in humanity's ear? Did the viper say, disobey God. No. The viper said, you can't trust God. You can't trust God to have your best interests at heart. And deep in my heart and deep in yours is the lie of the viper. 
the lie of that ancient serpent that God is not to be relied upon. The problem with our house? Asbestos in the basement. It's not what we're doing or not doing in any of our lives. The problem is why we are doing it. Martin Luther, the great 16th century church reformer, the church needs continual renovation. Martin Luther figured out our problem, which is, uh, what, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, said Jesus. Don't put your ultimate trust in anything other than God. Don't go looking for approval and hope from your career or from your children, your potential spouse, or your friends. Luther said that the reason the first commandment is the first commandment is that you only ever break the other nine when you've broken the first, when trusting God above all else is no longer at the center. All the other commandments, all other nine and some combination will get broken or they'll get fantasized about being broken. And you will not be able to live that life that deep down you really want to live. For example, you only ever tell a lie, you only ever lie because in that moment uh, something is more important to you than God right? Usually when you lie, it's like your reputation. You want people to think well of you. That's why most of us lie. What's going on here? Asbestos in the basement. That's what's going on. Our roots are rotten. Verse 9, even now, bellows John, even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. So what to do? Well, notice that in verse 16, John tells the curious crowds that he's preparing the way for the Messiah who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And apparently this is good news. And unfortunately this morning we don't have time to fully unpack that verse, but at least it's clear that the Holy Spirit has an important part to play in us being able to live those lives that we uh, so deeply want to. And, and the Holy Spirit is that living and active presence of God. And part of what happens when you decide to follow Christ Jesus is that the Spirit of Jesus takes up residence in your life and begins to slowly transform you. Your intellect, your will, your priorities. Now picture yourself as a house. A house where the contractor that you've hired is God Almighty. Now, at first, you understand uh, some of the decisions that the contractor's making. Up comes that asbestos, the walls are insulated, and you knew these things had to be done. You've been thinking about them uh, for quite some time. But soon, God starts working in that house in a way that's getting quite painful and inconvenient. God seems to now want to rewire the whole building. The explanation is that God is building quite a different house than the one you had in mind. You thought, maybe let's fix up the basement, add on a nice deck, but no. God is putting on a whole new extension, landscaping a beautiful garden with a swimming pool for all the neighborhood children. You thought you were being renovated into a tidy little semi? No, God's building a mansion. And it's a mansion that he wants to come and live in. 
The renovating work of the Holy Spirit is to call us to repentance, to turn away from all those other things that we put in the center of your life and mine, that place where God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, deserves to be alone. It's easy to think that the way we become a Christian is to start, you know, just doing good things. John, what should we do? Ask the anxious crowds in verse 20. Give generously to the poor. Don't rip people off. It's kind of obvious. We know this stuff. We, we deeply want to be that kind of person. And we all know, we know that there's room for each of us to grow in these areas. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey. But doing good things does not a Christian make. Because most of us, frankly, we don't do a lot of them. So it'd be super stressful if that was the price of admission to the Christian family. And even if you had a good stretch, eventually you'd hit a rough patch. Because before verse 10 is verse 8. John the Baptist to the crowds. Listen, you bunch of vipers. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. Repentance is not about good deeds. Repentance is about opening ourselves up to the renovation of our heart by the Holy Spirit, of the asbestos being taken out of the basement. Repent of the lie of the viper, says John, of not ultimately trusting God, of trusting in our children to give us purpose or trusting in our retirements. Repent, says John. He also knew that sometimes uh, the person of faith could be relying on their own ethical choices or their family history in a church. We have Abraham as our ancestor. But the fruits of repentance are the good deeds. And as we're renovated by the Holy Spirit, our house is then going to be decorated with generosity where there used to be selfishness. Our house is going to be decorated with honesty where there used to be deception. If you think you've repented, allow the Holy Spirit, the living presence of God to start working in your life, but there's no change in your behavior, you haven't repented. Verse 9. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My message, says John, the renovating work of the Holy Spirit is an axe laid to the root of the lie of the viper. This renovation is going to be expensive. But Jesus footed the bill. He paid off the contractor with his death on the cross. And it's going to take way longer than you think. Thankfully, it's going to take your whole life as the Holy Spirit shapes me and shapes you closer and closer into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now that's the kind of person that you want to be. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was asked by the British magazine The Spectator a few years ago to write a letter to his 14-year-old self. This is what he wrote. Dear Justin, you're rarely good at anything. 
a fact you know well and worry about. But don't worry. It does not measure who you are. Keep on dreaming of great things, but learn to live in the present so that you take steps to accomplish them. Above all, more important than anything, don't wait until you're older to find out about Jesus Christ and his love for you. He's not just a name at school, but a person that you can know. Christmas is not a fairy story, but the compelling opening of the greatest drama in history with you as one of millions of players. Life will often be tough, but you'll find more love and greatness than you can imagine now. With my love to you, Justin. There is light at the end. In these last days of Advent, the renovation of repentance is the first step on that pathway that will lead to all the gifts that Christmas promises to give us, peace, hope, joy. We sing about a lot of them. During the confession that will follow in a few minutes, I invite you to open yourself up, maybe for the first time or maybe the 50th time, to that renovating work of the Holy Spirit. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, and all the people shall know the salvation of our God. Amen.